Here's how we know you're ready. Do you know? The secret of your readiness is you just shut up. Okay? Could, what do you think? So uh, we have received some laments that the first minutes of this class are just like this. And it's hard to hear. So get your last grape. Say goodbye to your friend. No more happiness. No more relationship. And be quiet. Okay? That feels better. That feel pretty good? What do you think? All right, well done. Good job. Okay, you guys. So if you're just dropping in here, what we've been doing for the last couple of months, hey, Rachel, is studying one book of the New Testament every week. So we're doing, we're walking through week after week, picking one book. Roman got two weeks because it's Romans. Um, but, and they're all in here. So if you've missed any or all, oh, by the way, the Richmonds are here. John and Debbie Richmond, old, old friends, been here for a million years, moved away to some godless state, but they're back for the weekend. We're delighted to see you. If you want to grab any of them, this is everything we've been doing, okay? And so we've got these summaries of every book, and today we're on Jude. You need the document. You always need the document, but you really need it today. So if you don't have the Jude doc, grab one. Bob's passing them out. Wave at Bob. He'll hook you up. Anybody up here need Jude? Jude, Jude, Jude. You're good? Okay. Here's the thing, you guys. Generally speaking... When we're doing these summaries, the short books get a, a, a two-page summary. You know, like when we're doing, I don't know, what's a short book? James or something. I don't even know how long James is. Short books get a little one. And the long books like Corinthians and Romans, they get the long ones. This is the shortest book. Jude is not even a page long, and it gets a four-pager. And that's because it is, without question, the strangest book in the New Testament. Okay. Revelation is the most complicated. Hebrews is second most complicated. So it's not that it's complex. It's just that it is super, super, super weird, okay? And it's weird for a couple of different reasons, okay? The first thing that I want you to see, we're going we're gonna to try to unpack this. The first reason that it's weird is that Jude, as he's writing this letter, he's, he's using source material that we would typically find highly suspicious. That we would not be like, well, what are you quoting that for? What are you doing with that? Okay, that's the first thing that's weird. The second thing that's weird is that in illustrating his primary subject matter, well, his, I'll tell you, the, the subject matter, just like Second Peter last week, is, is false teachers, okay? So that's not strange. But when he illustrates his lessons about false teachers, sourcing things, in some very unconventional places, he says some stuff that you're going to have a very hard time believing is true. And he treats it like, yeah, obviously, you know, we're in the Rockies, right? He's just gonna, it's very obvious. And to you and I, the things that he's going to source is like, that's not obvious. And I don't know what you're talking about. And where did you get that from? And the whole thing is just super, super weird. Okay. But this is not my fault. This is what Jude says. This is not me being a friggin' weirdo. This is not me being a heretic. I promise you, I'm going to teach Jude straight. And if you follow what Jude is saying, it is a major, major head scratcher. Okay? Y'all ready? Excited? Some of you have heard that we've done this a little bit in this class before. Let me, let me just kind of take you through the big picture. Hands down, it's the strangest book. Who's Jude, first of all? Jesus. What's that? It is Jesus' brother. Now, he identifies himself as James' brother, but James is also Jesus' brother. And so the brother of James is the brother of Jesus. Um, his name wasn't really Jude. Do you know what his name really was? 
Judas. Could you think of any reason he might not have gone by Judas? Can you imagine? It's like naming your kid Adolf. You're like, well, that's going to go badly, right? Okay, so Judas, uh, Jude, Judas is Jesus' brother, and he meant to write a letter about something. He, he wanted to write these guys. He had something to say, and then something happened. We don't know what, but something happened that knocked him off his path. And he says, you know what? I'm going to write a different letter. He says it like this. He says, this is in verse 3. He says, dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted for the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Okay? So he meant to write a particular letter, and then he got news about something. Some information came to him, something about false teachers and the... the the trickiness. He saw somebody coming over the wall. He saw the false teachers coming in. He's like, you know what? Forget the first letter. Forget what I was going to do. Instead, I need to do this. Okay? So far, so good? Now, a couple of things do you want to think about as you, as you walk through Jude and things you're looking for. I'll, I'll go, we're going to go through Second Peter in a little bit. It's possible, possible, but we don't know that the thing <coughs> that got his attention was Second Peter, the letter we looked at last week. We'll do this later in the hour. I'm going to show you how incredibly similar 2 Peter, in particular 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude are, okay? So maybe he came across 2 Peter's letter and said, you know what? That's a really good point. I need to write these guys the same letter that Peter wrote to them and go after that. Maybe. That might not be true. We don't actually know. Did my mic just drop? Did you hear that? No? Okay. We don't actually know if 2 Peter came before Jude or if Jude came before 2 Peter but it would be impossible to convince a reasonable person that these letters are not related. They're just, they're way, way, way too similar. Okay, I'll show you that in a little bit. Something happened, maybe Peter, maybe something altogether different. Maybe Peter was ripping off Jude um, that said, we gotta talk about the false teachers, okay? But some, in the passage that I already read to you, he says something that's very, very important to understand the rest of the entire argument. Okay, so go back to that. Look at verse three again. This is, I have the whole letter for you in the inside, like this, you know, this middle column here, or you can look in your Bible. But look at verse three. He says, dear friends, though I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now here's the important part. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you, okay? There's something that was written about long ago. And so, if you're reading this, if you're just doing normal verse-by-verse, verse you know, uh, hermeneutic, you're, you're, uh, expo what do we call it? I'm losing a word. Exegesis, I'm like having a stroke before you all, okay? We're doing verse-by-verse verse exegesis, right? And he says, this thing was written about long ago. What's the question you should ask yourself? Where was it? What, what are you talking about? He's saying, I'm not making this up. I, this thing that we, we've all read before, this thing, that old, old, old news, that long ago prediction, that ancient prophecy, it's coming to pass, okay? So we should stop and be like, oh, what are you talking about? What, what's the, is it something, you know, probably Moses wrote. What are, you, what are you talking about, right? Does anybody know the answer to this question? When Jude says there's an ancient prophecy that is coming to pass, what's the ancient prophecy? Anybody know? He's going to give you two clues. Number one, he's going to quote it verbatim later in the letter. 
And number two, he's going to allude over and over and over to a particular thing that we have, a particular written thing that we have. Okay, now I'm gonna put an asterisk on that because it's so strange. So I'll correct my own words in a moment, but it's just too complicated to do all at once. What is he talking about, Gina? The book of Enoch. He's talking about the book of Enoch. Okay, so here's how this works. If you look at this document, um, go down in, in Jude. Ver, okay, Jude's only one chapter, so we call it, you might call it Jude 1 14 because you're just assuming it's the first chapter, but it's really the only chapter, so we just call it Jude 14. Jude, verse 14, says this. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Okay, so what you see there in verse 14 is the same thing he's talking about in verse three. In verse three, he says, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago. And then in verse 14, he says, the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. Do you see that those are the same thing? Verse 14 is saying what verse three is saying, is that there's some ancient prediction about these guys, okay? And then he gives you the language. He says, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch did not like these people. He calls them ungodly using every form of speech there is, right? The Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. If you go try to find that quote that he is ascribing to, to Enoch, the seventh from Adam, you're not going to find it in your Bible. It doesn't exist in the Old Testament. It's not in Genesis or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Enoch is a character. He's a person you see in the book of Genesis, but it's not recorded in Genesis. You with me? Okay. But he's saying that happened. It was a prophecy. He's, he's using technical language to describe that this is a divinely given message to Enoch, and we're like, okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I've never read that. I've never seen that. Where did you get that? Well, the answer is really complicated and borderline heretical, and, the, and we really don't actually know, okay? Because when Gina said he's quoting the book of Enoch, he doesn't say he's quoting the book of Enoch. What does he say? Say it. He's quoting Enoch. He's quoting the man, right? He does, he's not referring to a book. He's referring to a man. Now, here's the problem. We don't know what the man said. We don't know what Enoch said. How do we know what Enoch said? But we do have this book known as First Enoch. And if you look over here, if you're in this, this kind of, again, on this center column thing, right here, observe ye, you see that? That's, this is from First Enoch, okay? First Enoch says... Uh, actually, no, let's not do that one. Just go, go, to the bottom, go to the bottom right corner. There's a bunch of stuff from Enoch. Go to the very bottom right corner of the document. It says, and behold, he cometh with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of all their ungodliness, which they ungodly have committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What Jude is saying right there in Jude verse 13 or Jude verse 14 and 15 is exactly what First Enoch chapter one, verse nine says. No question, it's 100% what it says. The problem is nobody thinks the first Enoch is an authentic record of what Enoch said. It is what we call the, it's, it's, it's a part of a collection of Jewish books called the pseudepigrapha, okay? So like a pseudonym, if you write under a pseudonym, it's like fake, it means like a sort of. So the pseudepigrapha are things that are falsely or that are understood this is where it gets weird 
understood, understood to be falsely ascribed to somebody. So I write a letter, right? And I sign it, Jake Otterman. And Jake's like, what? I didn't write that. And I'm, well, it's now pseudepigrapha. It's I wrote it, but I'm claiming he wrote it, okay? Now, maybe you'd like that, maybe you wouldn't. Generally, you don't like it when people do that. So did Enoch write first Enoch? The answer is, nobody thinks so. I don't know, but it is probably the case. The best way that I resolve this, because Jude is not ascribing this to the book of first Enoch. He's ascribing those words to the man of Enoch. That it is probably the case that Enoch said something, actually really said something. And in particular, he said these very things. That the things that he said got captured in this book that got edited and corrupted. Um, and maybe the entire book was not written by him, but it act- I could write something and then every once in a while quote Jake and then sign Jake's name to the whole thing. And he can say, well, I didn't write that document, but you faithfully quoted me here, 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 and here. Okay, that might be the best way that we should understand this. What's still weird about it though, you guys, is this letter does not merely quote first Enoch one time. It says something, ascribes it to the man Enoch. It's a verbatim capture of what's in first Enoch. And over and over and over and over, he is alluding to things that permeate the letter of first Enoch. It's all over the place, okay? And the reason that's weird, the reason that's troubling for those of us that believe there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New is that one of those books in the New Testament gives an enormous amount of affirmation to a book that's in the pseudepigrapha. Does this make sense? This is why Jude is hands down the super, super weirdest book. And so what I've included for you, if you want to, you can, you could buy a copy of the pseudepigrapha, which I don't recommend. I think it'd be a waste of your money. But you, you could, and then you'd go through and you would see what, what I have done rather than that is I've just, if you'll see everywhere here, everything that's not in italics and this center thing is non-biblical. The italics are for the scriptures. Everything else from Enoch, I just quoted all these things. And if you go through and you read it, you'd be like, oh my gosh, that echoes that and that echoes that and that sounds like that. And he's using this language, he's using this imagery. Jude is drawing unmistakably from some source that he ascribes to the person of Enoch that we have captured in the book of first Enoch. You with me? So far so good? So that's a very strange thing. We, if he was quoting from Deuteronomy, we'd be saying, see, that's proof that Deuteronomy is God's word. If he was quoting from the Psalms, we'd be like, of course he is. The Psalms are scripture. He's quoting from first Enoch and we're like, I don't know what to do with that because it's really, really strange. So far so good? Okay, Judy. Wait, we say that a little, why did, say it louder. Why, so you're asking why was Jude included in the canon of Scripture? Okay, so the first thing, uh, so Jude's question is, the way, that she, the way that you phrased it was like, when there was that council that got together to decide, underline that word, what was in the Bible, why did they decide to include Jude? And I would, first of all, I would caution the characterization that they decided what was in the Bible and rather say they officialized what had long been recognized was the Bible. Okay, so when these letters, when Paul would write these letters, when, Paul, when Peter wrote his letters, what was happening for the church, they collected them. They would, they would take Romans and be like, you know what? This one's really good. 
Make a copy of it and then send it to the next town. And make another copy of it. Make another copy of it. So these letters in the New Testament that we have, when John's gospel was written, um, it was duplicated. It was read. It was, read, it was seen immediately. It was treasured as a divine revelation of who Jesus is. What well, doesn't happen for 300 years until basically when all of the persecution starts to calm down a little bit and the, and the church could get together and say, like, all right, let's make sure that we're all on the same page here. We're, we're, we all think Romans, we all think John, we all think Matthew, we all think, and overwhelmingly, it's, it's not a function of like arbitrarily deciding out of some corpus of 500 books, which is 27 to keep, but it was simply a recognition of what had long been true, including the inclusion of Jude. Jude had been read, Jude had been duplicated, Jude had been kept and maintained. We have tons and tons and tons of manuscript evidence for the authenticity and the inclusion of Jude long before the church ever put this official stamp of approval on it, okay? That's a longer conversation for how we recognize and determine and understand the canonicity of scripture. But Jude was long in because it's, everything that it's saying is true and I, I think it's probably useful to say that the Jewish audience that would have read this, they would have also recognized the authenticity of the history of these events, of these stories. It's some, the th- we haven't even gotten to the weirdest part. The weirdest part that's coming, we're like freaked out by, but they would have been like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. That was just a known thing. So it just wasn't as weird to them as it is to modern ears. Okay, how are we doing? So far so good? Okay, so when you read Jude, you just have to know he's quoting something that exists in First Enoch, that he ascribes to the person of Enoch, that he treats as authentic biblical prophecy. Let's take a look at what that prophecy is before we go any further, okay? So here's how he says. This is verse, thir- verse 14 again. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's that describing? Final judgment. You feel good about that? It's what we would, un- we would understand as the second coming, right? This is the second coming, which is stunning to me because Enoch is early, early, early in the story. He's the seventh descendant of Adam. I mean, he's super early in the story. This, would be, this could vie for the earliest prophecy in the Bible Even though it wasn't recorded in the Old Testament, it doesn't get captured until the New Testament. But its origin is like super, super, super old, which means maybe the earliest prophecy, the earliest prediction in the Bible is actually about the last thing that's ever going to happen. It's about the second coming. Long, early, early, early in the story, God revealed to Enoch the way the story is going to end is that God is going to come in power to this earth and clean up all the mess. That is a very old thing. The way he describes it here in Jude is he'll say back in verse three, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Their condemnation was written about long ago. God is not surprised by this. He's not, this is not a plan B. This was the plan all along. If you go to 2 Peter chapter two, and we still gotta get to 2 Peter in a minute. If you go to 2 Peter, the way that he's gonna describe this well, you can, even, you can actually just go to your back page if you want. You can see this. When he, what he says in verse 3, 2 Peter 2, the, the pink, the parallel to the pink is, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Listen to this. Their condemnation from long ago, from the Enoch, he, doesn't, he never mentions Enoch, but he's talking about the same thing. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. 
Sometimes we struggle. God makes a promise and we're like, could you please fulfill the promise already? Like, how long do I have to wait for this? The answer for this one, which is the last thing that's going to happen, is one of the very, very, very first things that was ever promised. That the day is coming when all the ungodliness in the world will be done away with. And Jude is saying, you guys, the day is closer now than when we first believed. And this condemnation that Enoch predicted a gajillion years ago is not sleeping. It feels like it's sleeping. We often feel like the promises are asleep, but it's not. The day is coming when God will judge all the wicked. And some of us who very reasonably include ourselves among the wicked will nevertheless be spared, right? That's what Jude is talking about. How are you doing? Can you live with this so far? Okay, here's the second super weird thing. Not just this weird canonicity question. Oh, and he also quotes something else that's even stranger called the Assumption of Moses. You can look that one up if you want to. I've made allusion to it here in the book, but we won't take time on it. Um, the other thing that's really weird is that in the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this strangeness, he's going to describe an event that is so odd and so puzzling. So once again, go to the go to this kind of center column here. This is the weird stuff. Look at verse five, six, seven, five, six, and seven. He says, though you already know all this. Okay, Judy, that's kind of my point earlier. Like, this is not weird to them. Like, this is just, they're like, yeah, this is, we talk about this, okay? Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. He's making an argument that God is able to be particular and precise. He doesn't just have to like, if he wanted to kill, you know, 17 of the people in this room, he wouldn't have to just like burn the whole thing down and like say, so sorry for all the collateral damage, right? He can like be particular in the way that he exercises judgment, okay? So he says this, he says, um, the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angel, and by the way, those people who did not believe are not the Egyptians. Those are the Israelites he's talking about. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, to which you might think, wait, what? Which angels? What was their proper position? When did they abandon their own home? What are you even talking about? Okay. He says, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. Okay. So, Anybody want to throw out a candidate? What are the angels who left their positions of proper authority and had some weird thing go down and then got all thrown into some prison to be waiting for the day of judgment? Who is he talking about? Satan and the fallen angels. Yes, but there's a subset of them. Gil? Okay. You're rec okay, so Gil is right. He's pointing back to this era of the Nephilim, okay, which is super weird. So go to Genesis. There's a, there's a passage in Genesis 6 that's super weird, but not so explicit that you can't, like, paper it over and make it be, like, not as weird as you don't want it to be, okay? Enoch is going to rob you of that opportunity, but here's what it says. Now, this is Genesis 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Okay, so what that might mean is that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. That might mean that like faithful followers of God who are the sons of God 
so that the daughters of men, which is like, I don't know, like some like the women in some like pagan cult, that they were beautiful. That's happened before. Plenty of Christian men have been drawn, drawn away to like, uh, uh, you know, like bad women. And maybe that's what is happening and everything's fine and we can live with that and let's just keep moving, okay? But that's not what it means. What are the, do you know what the, son, the phrase sons of God means every time it occurs in the Bible? It's talking about angels. What this passage is saying, absolutely saying, is that angels, angelic beings, non-humans, saw that the daughters of men, human beings, human females, were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Which, who knew that was even possible, okay? And then it says this. It says, my spirit won't contend with man forever. He's mortal. His days will not be 120 years. And then as Gil said, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. Okay, so it doesn't exactly say that the Nephilim were the children. It stops short of saying the Nephilim are the descendants of these hybrids between angels and when I say angels, hear that as demons. These are bad angels. Angels and humans have children that are Nephilim. Genesis doesn't quite say that. It just says, hey, look, there's angels having sex with humans and having babies. Also, there are Nephilim, right? It doesn't actually make, make the connection. Enoch steals all of that, okay? And look, here's what Enoch says. This is first Enoch. First Enoch is not scripture, but it is, seems to be Jude's source material or something very like it. He says it like this. He, he erases all the helpful ambiguity, okay? And he says, And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of the heavens, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And all the others, together with them, took unto themselves wives, and each chose himself chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. So, is it the strangest thing in the New Testament? Okay, now, you might want to say, yeah, but Enoch didn't, or Jude doesn't say any of that. All that Jude says is, that the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. He doesn't say anything about sex or sexual immorality. So how do you even know that's what he's talking about? Okay? Well, the answer is, that is what he's talking about. Okay? And look at the next verse. Look at verse 7. He says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up sexual immorality and perversion. If Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, and if they did that in a similar way to what the previous verse was talking about, what was the previous verse talking about? Sexuality, sexual immorality. And do, you, do you feel it? He is absolutely saying that what you had in Sodom and Gomorrah, and by the way, do you remember do you remember what was the pinnacle of sexual morality in the Sodom and Gomorrah event? Men wanted to have sex with angels. This was the event. The, the angels come down to judge the thing, and they're like, hey, some of the men that, you've, that have come down here. And 
what we're seeing is it, what is Sodom and Gomorrah is interspecial. I don't know what you call it, right? It is, it's, just, it's an event where men are trying to rape angels. And what Jude is saying, you know, that's shockingly similar in an inverted way to what happened in Genesis 6, where women were being taken and chosen and gotten pregnant by, by demons. That's what he's saying happened. Okay? Okay, you guys good now? Everything okay? It is the strangest book in the New Testament. And that is absolutely what he's talking about. Okay? So, uh, we won't have time to fully unpack what are all the implications of that. Is it even possible? How does this work? Why would human eggs be compatible with angelic sperm? Why do angels have sperm? <laughs> really, I mean, it, it is so puzzling. Everything about it is so weird. But that is what Jude is talking about. Okay? Quick's going to get the papers filled right now. <laughs> and just, just, and it's over. Well, some, next week, you guys enjoy Sunday school with somebody <laughs> besides me. Okay? That's what's going on in Jude. Okay? Now, here's what I want you to see in all of this. It's so puzzling. I don't understand all of it. I don't believe that First Enoch is Scripture. It's not, it's nowhere do we raise it. But we do know that the Bible routinely sources things outside of its own self, right? So Paul will quote the Cretan poets and say, as Jimmy, your poets have said, all Cretans are liars, you know, brutes, evil, gluttons, or however that goes, right? There's all this time that we'll, we'll source things outside. What's unique here, though, it's a little bit different than that, is that he's quoting something that sounds so much like First Enoch in a way that treats it with great credibility, He's sourcing things in and say, that guy was right when he said that, right? Doesn't mean it's scripture, but that prophecy seems to be of divine origin. And that pro and he's, by the way, you gotta know, Jude's not freaked out by any of this. Jude is not warning us. He's not saying, hey, this is gonna be hard for your ears to hear, slow down. He's just assuming it. This was all part of their common culture to understand all of these things. And what I'm telling you Genesis 6 means is uniformly what Judaism thought it meant for like, Hundreds, of, this is not a novel thing. It's weird to us. It wasn't weird to anybody for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so if you want to go back and you want to do some research on it, feel free. Um, the guys from the Bible Project have done a little bit of work on this. Um, and they would say the same thing that I'm, that I'm telling you. Um, and the best commentary on this, I, could, I can even give, if you want to look at some of the best commentaries on this stuff, I've read it all. And it's, this is what it means. This is what it's saying. Okay, so we just got to deal with it and take it. Jennifer? Yes, yes. So the Nephilim, they show up a couple of different times, but it's never made explicit in the Old Testament, except for Genesis 6, which is again a little bit veiled, that these would be human-angel hybrids, right? So the, the existence of these huge people... Oh, I'll, I'll mention two more things briefly about the Nephilim. Generally speaking, whenever the Nephilim show up in the Bible, the, the order of the day is to kill them all, okay? Because they're huge and they're evil, some believe, and I think there's plausibility to this, that the reason the flood happened is because of the Nephilim. The, 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 the image you get right before the flood was like everything was evil. Everything has just gone all to just, it's just, it's gone to waste and ruin. And so we got to kill everybody. And if you think about it, if it's possible, this might be the case, that Satan, well, it is the case. Satan knew that a promise had been made in Genesis 3 that one day the woman is going to bring forth 
a seed. The seed of the woman will come and crush the snake. And if he knew, and he did know, that the, his demise, or at least his attack, the, the assault against him, would come through some human being born of a woman, it would be reasonable if he had as a strategy to completely pollute the gene pool, to ruin the thing, to, to flood humanity, though you would never have any purebred humans anymore. You just have these like human demon offspring, right? And the whole thing gets ruined. And it's also possible that he succeeded to what such a wild, ex- Satan succeeded to what a wild ex- such a wild extent that God cleared the decks and killed everyone because the population was so infected. And then he began again. And if I, if I were to tell you that God would kill every human being on the face of the earth and start again, I don't think you'd believe me unless you'd already read that he had done precisely that. It is, can we agree that that was a rather drastic action to take, right? I mean, good grief, he drowned the world. And you must wonder like, why did he drown the world? What would be so grievous that it would require clearing the decks and starting again? This has some consistency with that, that that may have been what was going on, okay? Hey, welcome back to Holy Spirit, Richmond. Aren't you glad this is the week you came? Okay. So, all right. Now, here's what the, what's the letter really about? The letter is about this. The letter is about the goodness of judgment. It's about the goodness of judgment. But it's also about the supremacy of mercy, right? He is not at all. Look, look at how many times he's going to say things like this. Certain men, this is kind of on that first page, third block. Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have, slept, have, have slipped in among you. Second paragraph. Though you know this, I want to remind you, God destroyed people. There's a judgment coming. There is this punishment of eternal fire, right? All of this. He's going to say that things are, these things are coming that will destroy them. He's going to say in verse 13 that blackest darkness has been reserved for them forever. By the way, what, sticking with that metaphor, who... It's definitely blocking out, right? I'm not imagining this. Okay. So do we not have, are these things? It's all right. Okay. Uh, well, here, let me see this, Bob. Are these, is this, uh, we'll just do it. It's going to get worse. Okay, we got to get rid of these. Bob, be the best. You is not in Yeah. Okay. How's that? Okay, so, um, who gets black as darkness, according to this? Stay with the imagery that he's using. Who, who gets black as darkness? In Jude verse 13. Uh, but look, just stay, stay, with, stay within the, his own imagery. Wandering stars. Okay, what does it mean for a star? Who said this? Stars get black as darkness. What does that mean? If you're a star, you're necessarily lit up and you get black as, I mean, stars are always in the dark. They live in the night, you know, like they're over there, right? What does it mean if the star gets black as darkness? It's dead. It's extinguished. It's an image of, it's an image of destruction. It's an image of death. This is what he's, what he's doing here. The blackest darkness, if a star is black as darkness, that means it's like a black hole or it's a, does every star turn into a black hole? Whatever goes through supernova and then it craters and it's dead and it gravity. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about death. 
He's talking about destruction. He's talking about judgment. He's talking about destroying. He's talking about condemnation. The whole book is saying, don't worry. I know you live in a world where all these bad guys are prospering. They are thriving. They are lying. And all these lying liars are getting away with it and it's driving you out of your mind. But I want you to remember, way early, Enoch promised that the bad guys are going to lose. Sometimes, in order, if we're going to live the peace-loving lives, if we are going to not be a bunch of vengeful killers, we have to trust that God's promise to clean up all the evil will be kept. It doesn't feel like it's being kept very well. Do you notice this? But his promise is it will be kept, and so you don't have to do it. And instead, because of the goodness of judgment and the certainty of judgment, we are something else. We are a people whose lives are endlessly marked by mercy. Look, look how often he, this is a very short letter. He's going to say, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. He says, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. He says, you are to be merciful to those who doubt. You are to snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, you are to show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. This whole book is about the certain coming of God's judgment, even against some very evil demonic things. But in the meantime, while we wait for judgment, we ourselves are not, we do not look at the justice of God and from that take permission to walk around with swords cutting people's heads off. We are Christians. We are endlessly merciful, gracious, kind, patient, loving, loving, because we know the day of God's judgment is coming and it's not my job. We are to be a people who love mercy, who show mercy, who wait for mercy. You with me? Okay, that's what you're looking for. The final, final thing, and I'm supposed to be looking for Tiffany. Where is Tiffany? Okay, so, so Tiffany's coming. Just a second. We're, I got a special guest for just the last couple of minutes. The last thing I want you to see, uh, if you go to the back, you go to this colorful page on the back. As I mentioned earlier, Jude and Second Peter are overwhelmingly related to one another. Nobody knows, did Peter borrow from Jude? That's probably not my lead. Did Jude borrow from Peter? I think so, but I might be wrong. Or did Jude and Peter both come across some other third source that they were both influenced by and drawing from. I don't know, okay? But if you read through them, they're, they're clearly related. If you, go, if you just look through and you do this little color comparison that I did, some stuff's, I ran out of color, so some stuff's underlined, some stuff's bold. If you go through it, you're gonna see overwhelmingly da, 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 lots and lots of the same language. And that can be helpful, it can be insightful to read. How, how does Jude phrase it? Oh, that's interesting. And then how does Peter phrase it? And these things relate and can, and can add you know, color and context to each other. There's a very clear relationship there. So if you, if you decide you want to study Jude this week, give yourself a little bit of time in 2 Peter 2. Or even 2 Peter 3 picks it up, but mostly, it's, mostly stuff's contained in chapter 2. Gary. Isn't it likely that the Holy Spirit just said the same thing to two different men? Yeah, okay, so is it pos it's possible that, um, that the Spirit of God was speaking to both the same, but I don't, I don't think that's likely. Because when we, when we look at the scriptures, we, I have a, I, my view, and I, it's very, the broad orthodox view, is the scripture has two authors, right? Each book. So, so Jude wrote Jude and the Holy Spirit wrote Jude. And Peter wrote Jude. I mean, Peter wrote Peter and the Holy Spirit wrote Peter. Okay, those are true. And so when we see at the, we have to look at it at both levels of the divine 
you know, coordination. If there was merely sameness of theology, sameness of, um, you know, ultimate purpose, then we, we would expect to see that everywhere. We see same theology in Exodus that we see in Zephaniah, right? And we don't, we don't believe that they're in cahoots. That's just the spirit of God. But if you do this comparison, the language is so particular at a human level that um, everybody thinks that these things were, were related. And, I, and I, I certainly do. And there's no problem that it would be the case. Any more, no more of a problem than we think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had insight into the things that the other wrote, right? That they, one, they were, they're both looking at the same event, but they don't rec- record the same event just at the same conceptual level, but literally verbatim similarities. And it would, be, it would be very, very strange if that wasn't reflective of them being aware, you know, one being aware of the other's work. So, and there's nothing that questions are, like I have an extremely high view of scripture. Like that's not a, that's not a faithless kind of interpretation of that. Okay, Bob. Tiffany, come on up, make your way up. Yeah, that's where I say. So it's most most of it's in Second Peter chapter two. Some of it's in chapter three. Um, this this line here in the last days, the way that Peter puts it, in the last days scoffers will come scoffing. Right? Jude says, uh, in the last days there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires, and that is what Bob is pointing out is that thing in Jude is, is it's in quotation marks. So is he intentionally quoting something that Peter said? Possibly. It's, po- it's possibly the case. I don't know. And nobody, re- I've read a bunch of stuff, different theories. It, does, it doesn't particularly matter, but they're just related. And so if you read one, it will just give you insight into the other. And I think that'll be helpful. Cool? Okay. Um, I don't have any more time because we have a guest. Tiffany, come on up. So you guys, I just asked Tiffany to join us for just a minute. And uh, Tiffany is one of our very own that is serving Christ far, far from home. And we're going to give her a chance to tell a little bit of that story um, for like five minutes. And then we're going to head out. So, Tiffany, welcome. So glad you're here. Thank you. (laughs) So this is a little weird for me because back when I was actually part of this church, this was the sanctuary. If you've been here long enough, you might remember when this space was a sanctuary. So my name is Tiffany. My parents, Mike and Sally, have been a part of this church for a long time, since the 90s. When I first started coming, I think I was in about 10th grade, so like 1996 or something like that. So I was a part of the youth group during that time, and that's actually when I was first introduced to, I mean, I was aware of missions, but that was when I was able to take my first mission trip, and that's when we went to Bolivia and Peru back in, like, 98, I think. But for me, it was more of just a selfish decision. I just wanted to go travel to another country. God had given me an adventurous spirit, and that's what I wanted to do. So I wanted to open with that just by to encourage you guys, if you're interested in any sort of missions work, if you feel like you're making a selfish decision just because you want to travel and go on a missions trip, like God can use that and redeem that (laughs) because he has for me over the years. So long, long story with that, but I'm just thankful to be part of God's kingdom work in Papua New Guinea. There, You've got your world map over there, and I think they've got the country of Papua New Guinea highlighted. It's that big island that's just north of Australia, so the other side of the world. It's my friends, Bill and Kelly Housley, have been missionaries there for about 20 years. And so I've 
been very interested in their work and just very humbled by the, the way that they do tribal missions. So basically they went into a tribal location in the bush in the jungle 20 years ago, learned the language. The language was not written down, so they came up with an alphabet for it, started to teach the people literacy, started to translate the Bible, which is still ongoing, and helped to plant a church. And now there's a, a thriving church with elders that has planted multiple other churches and about 10 other villages that are part of that language group and a couple of neighboring language groups because Papua New Guinea has over 850 different languages. It's one of the most linguistically diverse countries in the world. So there's lots and lots of work to be done there. Most of them are not written languages. So they've been very faithfully serving with this Inapong tribe for many years. The word Inapong means man-eater because they used to be cannibals. It's, it's an intense sort of place. So they've, they've been working in that context for a long time, but the whole goal is to, to leave the ministry in the hands of the people. And so they no longer live in the tribe. They take visits a couple of times a year, but the people have, they, they've, they're continuing the work. So enter Ramu Valley Academy. That's the school that I teach at. I'm a science teacher. I'm a nerdy bird biologist loving to travel and do research kind of person. Worked in the field of wildlife science for 20 years. Have loved my career and the things that the Lord has made possible for me. But it's so beautiful to see how he has very specifically equipped me for this type of work, teaching in this context. So the kids that we're teaching are the children, the sort of the second generation of kids that, of people in this village, in this people group, to know about Christ. So if you ever hear, like, a person sharing their testimony that says, oh, I grew up in a Christian home or something like that, that's sort of a common thing in the United States, that is not a common thing in Papua New Guinea. So when some of our kids are starting to say, oh, I grew up in a Christian home, it's so exciting for my friends in particular just to say that, that they can actually say that, that they grew up in a Christian home. So it's really, really cool. So this, this school, we just started it three years ago. I've only been a part of it for six months, so I don't feel like I've deserved a break to come back here so soon, but that's just when our kids have their summer break. So I'll be here about every August. So about a month or two after I was Living in Papua New Guinea, I got a message from Quig that said that the vestry had decided to support me financially, which is amazing and so humbling. And I am, just like Paul says, I am well supplied. I have absolutely no needs financially. When this opportunity came up, I actually was thinking still short term. I love my job, love my career, have placed too much of my identity in my career. Actually, it's part of my testimony. So I contacted my friends and I said, hey, I'd still, I'm interested in your school, would love to maybe come and just teach like a short course, like a two-week course on birds or nature or something. And when she wrote me back a couple days later, she's like, actually, we just found out that our science teacher is leaving really soon. And that's when I was like, okay, God, like I get it. <laughs> Talk about changes, sacrifice, things like that. It's very, very difficult, but it's also very rewarding. So I think it's beautiful. I'm always very encouraged by this church and how missional this church is. It has very close ties with Rwanda and other places. And so I'm just thankful to, to be a part of that. So I've got pictures and video. I've got a newsletter. The reason I brought this card up is 
if you, I think there's still a stack of these cards out in the Narthex place. So there's QR codes on the back. You can sign up for my newsletter or like go to my blog, website, things like that. We can see pictures and stories and stuff. So thank you. That's all. Let's just, let's just pray for one second for Tiffany. Lord, what a gift to have her be with us here from being literally as far away from here as you can possibly be. And Lord, we pray for the work in Papua New Guinea, <clears throat> that gospel would spread, that these churches would grow, and more churches be planted, more, uh, what do we call them, linguists, more translators to go, that everyone everywhere throughout Papua New Guinea would hear the gospel in their own language. But I, th I pray that the work that Tiffany does to teach kids, to make it possible for other missionary families to serve there and know their children are learning and to discover that the heavens declare the glory of God, that you have written it in the sky, that you're, you reveal yourself through nature. Would you give her a peculiar ability to reveal your supremacy, your goodness as she teaches these folks, Lord. We love you. Thanks for loving us. Amen. 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 All right, we'll see you guys next week.